Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. It's surprisingly windy here right now, which is bad for a number of reasons. That number being three. Reason A is that the wind is kind of noisy, and that can be a little bit of an issue with sound recording. It's not a particularly large problem. Problem two rates significantly higher on the problem scale, which is that a significant portion of the state that I live in is on fire right now, and the wind makes things a lot worse in that regard. So obviously that's a pretty significant concern. But problem C is the one that I think is getting to me the most on a personal level. And that's that when it's windy, I am reminded of the lyrics to the song Windy by the association. And one of those lyrics is, Who's bending down to give me a rainbow? Which just sounds like a filthy thing to say, and I am terrified that if I have the song Windy stuck in my head, then those lyrics are going to come out of my mouth conversationally when I am talking to someone, and they will justifiably murder me. So anyway, for a number of reasons, that number being three, I sure wish this wind would die down. Anyway, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis poem is submitted by Devin Tuhey. It's pronounced Constantine? What kind of world is this? Next thing Hub will tell us is to rhyme words with synopsize. Thanks, Devin. Man, I really wanted to make that rhyme, or fit a meter that I could figure out. But eagle-brained listeners will remember that a couple of weeks ago, months ago, hours ago, an indeterminate amount of pandemic time ago, I decided to use a synopsis poem that didn't rhyme. And now the floodgates are open and we live in a society without rules. This is what happens when you deregulate. Which is not to besmirch Devin's lovely poem. It's just that my stupid brain really wants to fit it in a tidy little box. But no way, man. Devin's poem doesn't play by the rules. It's a bad boy. It's probably got a leather jacket and chews on a toothpick and gets rid of the dust jacket to its hardcover book as soon as it buys it. And it's like, you don't need these things, man. But you know what, Devin's poem? I like the dust jackets to books. I feel like they give you more artwork, and they give you a built-in bookmark for your new book. So, I guess that just makes me the mayor of Squaresville, Devin's poem. I'll just be over here in Nerdsburg, wearing breathable fabrics and not losing my place in my book. Now I know what you're thinking. If I'm the mayor of Squaresville, what am I doing in Nerdsburg? Well, I already told you what I'm doing there. I'm not losing my place in a book and wearing breathable fabrics. But the reason I'm in Nerdsburg is because I lost a fun run to the mayor of Nerdsburg, who's surprisingly athletic given the name of his town. 
Anyway, I'm scheduled to be in their dunk tank at their town fair in a few hours. It's all in good fun, and the proceeds go to charity. Anyway, thanks, Devin. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 28, February 1987. Resurrection. Written by Marf Wolfman, with dialogue by Paul Levitz, drawn by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Marf Wolfman, and consulting editor Mike Gold. Teen Titan Roll Call Cyborg Wonder Girl Starfire Jericho Beast Boy The Flash The Wally West version Robin The Jason Todd version Francis Kane Maybe Nightwing Sort of Raven But with the same qualifier as Nightwing seeing as they're definitely in the book but aren't really on the Titan side Zack Wingman same modifier as the previous two, plus it's arguable whether he's a teen, seeing as he was frozen in ice for 500 years. And Robot Man, who is definitely on the Titan side, but also definitely isn't a teen, although come to think of it, neither is Nightwing anymore, seeing as he recently turned 20, so maybe I should just change it to Titan Roll Call. Previously in the New Teen Titans. The Church of Blood, an evil organization run by a supposedly septicentennial, occasionally dead, creepy cult leader named Brother Blood, has been hard at work amassing a collection of Teen Titans and their allies. The first Titan-adjacent character on the strangely sanguinary sex shopping list was the amnesiac alien angel we've taken to calling Zack Wingman. Ever since Zack's one-time love interest, the sporadically psychic former Teen Titan Lilith, left him to go become a Greek goddess, the gang's forgetful feathered frenemy has been flying around the world, cry-yelling at no one in particular. While he was rigorously emoting on an archipelago in the Caribbean, the winged wanderer was approached by Mother Mayhem, Brother Blood's malevolent major domo who was running the church while her boss suffered from a temporary bout of unaliveness. Mayhem told Zack that his name was Azrael and that he was a very special angel from heaven. That sounded good to Zack, so off he went to the Church of Blood's secret compound. Next on the evil cults to kidnap list was a recently resurrected raven. The avian-themed Azerathian had appeared to die in the act of destroying her extra-dimensional bad dad Trigon, who had been living in her bird-shaped soul tummy. But Raven's mom Arella had a feeling that her druidical daughter wasn't quite so dead after all. With the aid of a helpful tobacco farmer with a terrible hat, Arella tracked her alive after all offspring to a leper colony in the swamps of Louisiana, where the denizens had abducted the anguished empath and were forcing her to cure their wounds. Arella was about to rescue her distraught daughter, but before she got the chance, heavily armed acolytes of the Church of Blood swooped in, murdered all the lepers, and kidnapped both mother and daughter alike. Nightwing had just returned to Earth after celebrating an unhappy 20th birthday by sullenly nursing a cup of coffee as the third wheel on his girlfriend Starfire's space honeymoon. Once back on terra firma, the angst-ridden acrobat embarked on a solo mission to rescue Raven and Arella from the Church of Blood's clutches. Donning an unconvincing disguise, Dick attempted to infiltrate the church's headquarters. He made his way to the cell where Raven and her mother were being held, only to find that Raven had been thoroughly brainwashed and had no desire to leave the church. 
Wearing a new white outfit and an unsettling beatific smile, the avian aficionado abductee assisted an acolyte named the Confessor by using her emotion-manipulating ability to convert Nightwing into a brother blood-worshipping zealot, bringing her fellow bird-themed buddy into the fold. When the rest of the Titans learned that Nightwing, Raven, and to a lesser extent, Zack Wingman and Arella were in the clutches of an ominous occult organization, they leapt into inefficient action. Aqualad had recently been taken hostage by Beast Boy's unstable stepfather, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, who had flipped out after succumbing to a debilitating magic hat addiction. But when the gang learned that some other, non-Aqualad Titans were in trouble, they figured the Aquatic Ace could probably take care of himself. Leaving the amphibious adventure in the hands of a depraved madman, Temporary team leader Wonder Girl enlisted the aid of new Robin, Jason Todd, and former Teen Titan and current The Flash, Wally West. Then she immediately forgot that she recruited Wally and left him behind while the rest of the team flew halfway around the world to the Baltic nation of Zandia so that they could break into the Church of Blood's compound there and learn the location of Blood's American churches so that they could rescue their non-Aqualad allies. A titular teenage team invaded Zandia, attacking government officials, random citizens, and a team of supervillains before finding the information they sought and blowing up the Church of Blood's headquarters, presumably killing hundreds of Blood's followers. Then they headed back to America to save their pals. Gadzooks! Why would our heroes abandon Aqualad like that? How will the Titans use the information they gathered in Zandia? And what role will Raven play in the Church of Blood's sinister scheme? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, because they're assholes, they won't. And they need her to go on stage and convince a hologram to stop being a baby so it can make out with her. I think. There are hallucinogens involved. A few days ago, during the press conference that sparked the Titans' trip to Zandia, Mother Mayhem announced that pretty soon, the Church of Blood was going to hold a huge televised event, which would culminate with the resurrection of the supposedly 700-year-old perfidious pontiff himself, Brother Blood. This story has caught the imagination of the world and dominated the news cycle ever since. Which is probably a good thing for our heroes, because... Otherwise, there might have been more coverage of the Titans invading a sovereign nation, stealing the president of said country's garage door opener, and blowing up a church. That's the sort of thing the press sometimes frowns upon. The big day Mother Mayhem promised has finally arrived, and the eyes of the world are on the Church of Blood's fancy new state-of-the-art cathedral in Washington, D.C. The place is packed with a mixture of true believers, new converts, and curious spectacle-seekers hoping to be convinced that miracles can happen. The entire event is being broadcast on all three major networks, with the coverage hosted exclusively by longtime Titans foil and not-so-secret acolyte of the Church of Blood, Bethany Snow. Snow's reporting style is borderline televangelical as she directs her audience's attention to the dais where Mother Mayhem is about to speak. The alliteratively named church leader gives a little speech and is like, Hey, you guys ready to see some weird shit? The crowd answers in the affirmative, and we see for the first time that a thoroughly mind-washed Raven and Nightwing have front row seats. Suddenly, a glowing ball of light appears in the middle of the stage. It starts to pulsate, and after a few seconds, from within its depth, appears a mysterious winged figure. Why, 
It's Zach Wingman. Zach steps out of the glowing orb and is like, Hi, everybody. My name's Azriel, and Mommy, I mean Mother Mayhem, told me that I'm a super special angel from heaven. Neat, huh? Look at my pretty wings. I can probably bring dead people back to life and stuff. You know, on account of my wings. Whee! The crowd is super into Zack's performance and starts chanting, Yes! at him. Mother Mayhem depresses a button, which opens a star-shaped skylight in the roof. Zack is like, Okie dokie, I'm gonna fly up to heaven now and see if I can bring Brother Blood's soul back with me. Wish me luck! The crowd, Raven and Nightwing included, shout, Rise! in unison at the alleged angel. Buoyed by the well wishes of those assembled, Zack Wingman ascends dramatically towards the heavens. Backstage, in a high-tech control room, the acolytes of the Church of Blood are hard at work. A series of satellites that had been launched into space from Zandia project holographic beams of light into the cathedral, which bathe a rising Zack in a radiant halo. We learn that in addition to the holograms, the church has been microdosing the crowd with hallucinogens in the incense they are burning. Holograms and psychedelic drugs? Diabolical! That sort of technology shouldn't be used at churches to mesmerize parishioners. Should be used at planetariums to make Laser Floyd more awesome. For shame, Mother Mayhem. For shame. As Zack rises into the air, a new hologram appears on stage. It's the image of a huge cosmic fetus, like at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey. When he sees this, Dick starts to snap out of his daze and begins to question what he's seeing. So Mother Mayhem slaps him in the neck with a needle that delivers a double dose of goof juice to the doped-up do-gooder, and he goes back to chanting along with the rest of the crowd. Once Nightwing resumes his drug-induced religious fervor, Mother Mayhem addresses the audience and informs them that the resurrection is about to get underway. Back at the Titan Tower, the gang's watching events unfold on TV when they receive a visitor. It's Francis Kane! Hi, Francis! Francis Kane is Wally West's much put upon girlfriend who has magnet powers and wishes she didn't. A while back, when he was still Kid Flash, Wally told her that he was going to retire from superheroing, and they moved to the Midwest together to try to live a normal life. Apparently, the no longer junior Wizard of Wiz has neglected to inform his partners that he's back to spandexing around, this time as the all-grown-up Flash. I mean, in his defense, he did retire from being Kid Flash? In true speedster fashion, Wally tries to rush right past the part where he apologizes for lying to Fran and withholding information from her, and skip right to the part where he pressures her into using her powers to join the Titans, something that Fran has always been vocally opposed to. Damn it, Wally! Beast Boy tries to lighten the mood by being a gross creep and objectifying Francis. Damn it, Beast Boy! Cyborg tells the gang not to pressure Francis and that she has to make up her own mind, but the rest of the gang seems pretty intent on pressuring Francis. Damn it, the rest of the gang! Francis flees the room in tears and retreats to a guest bedroom. Fortunately, another visitor stops by the tower, one who has no compunctions about lending our heroes a hand. It's Beast Boy's old Doom Patrol buddy, Robot Man. Neat! Robot Man is pretty much what it says on the box. A Robot Man. He's also pretty rad. He and Beast Boy sass one another for a while, then the heroes start formulating a plan. 
Meanwhile, up in the guest room, Frances finds a box with her name on it. Oh, that's nice. Looks like Wally got her a present to make up for trying to pressure her into doing superhero stuff with him. Fran opens the box. It's a superhero outfit. Damn it, Wally! Back at the cathedral, Raven has climbed up on the stage and starts touching the hologram of the space fetus's face, yelling at it to grow up. The hologram appears to do as it is instructed, maturing first into the glowing outline of a baby, then growing to the luminous silhouette of a small child. Raven embraces the hologram with a look of rapture on her face. It is super creepy. By this time, the Teen Titans have finalized their clever plan. They are going to try to sneak into the cathedral through an entrance on the rooftop. As clever plans go, it's not much, but I guess it's marginally more clever than invading a foreign country and blowing up a church to get information that was readily available in the yellow pages, so at least it's a step in the right direction. In the control room, Blood's followers notice that the Titans have arrived and decide to send a small force to greet them. The idea is, they want to keep the teens occupied until Brother Blood's resurrection is done, then the surprisingly spry supposed Septicentarian himself can defeat the Titans on national TV, while former Titans Raven and Nightwing denounce their old teammates. Everything goes more or less according to plan. The Titans and Robot Man enter the building through the rooftop doorway, then easily defeat the perfunctory security force that greets them. They then head downstairs and start making their way towards the backstage area so that they can try to rescue and deprogram their friends. Meanwhile, on stage, the hologram has matured into the shape of a full-grown man and is grabbing Raven's butt as she throws herself into its arms. Gross. Raven, I know you're brainwashed and all, but that thing was a baby like a second ago. Also, it's evil. Knock it off. In another part of the building, Mother Mayhem has devised another tactic to delay our heroes. She sends the Confessor, the armored creep who helped torture brainwash Raven and Nightwing, to intercept the invaders, along with a small team of thugs and... a hostage. Wait, did someone finally remember that Aqualad had been abducted like three issues ago? No, of course not. The hostage the Confessor drags along with him is Raven's mom, Arella. The Confessor confronts the Titans and tells them that unless they surrender, he is totally going to kill Arella. Naturally, the Titans don't surrender. So the Confessor kills Arella. Wow. I mean, it's a little more drawn out than that. There's chase down a tunnel and the Flash has to divert a flood. And there's a second confrontation, which is where the murder actually takes place. But yeah, basically, the Titans call the Confessor's bluff and... He wasn't bluffing. As the Titans are momentarily stunned by the fatal consequences of their overconfidence, the ceremony inside the cathedral approaches its climax. With tears in his eye, Zack Wingman bellows at the hologram to complete its transformation and become a fully resurrected Brother Blood. Aided by satellite-induced light shows and drug-induced hallucinations, the hologram seems to comply. The silhouette of crackling energy within Raven's arms shimmers and pulses. Its outline blurs and alters itself to accommodate a snake-headed cowl and a cape with a tall Dracula collar. There's a final burst of light which flings Raven to her knees. And finally, from within the illusion of this unearthly reverse shadow, a fully corporeal, 
colorfully costumed man appears on stage. He addresses the crowd and informs them in no uncertain terms that Brother Blood is back. Well, shit. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going all right. Beautiful late summer in this neck of the woods. Trying to consume a little less uh, social media or, or news this week, just, you know, for health purposes. I think that sounds reasonable. The world is maybe a terrible place right now, or it seems it, certainly. Certainly does, yeah. Yeah, I think that is a wise decision. I watched some reruns of Jeopardy the other day. That was nice. There was a gentleman who was uh, the champion for several days in a row who made little kitty cat paws after he won every time, and it was very cute. Uh, They asked him one time, and he's like, I like tigers. Wow. That was really nice. I enjoyed that. I believe his name was Josh. I don't think I've ever seen that gesture done by a person, let alone as a victory thing. Well, he did it at the beginning and at the end, so it was like they would show his face, and he would, like, smile and give a little thumbs up, and then give a little, like, roar. Wow. Like, he didn't say roar or anything, but, like, you know, like, huh? But it it was a very, like, odd kind of semi-apologetic gesture, and it was very endearing. Hmm. That is going to be really tough to pull off. Yeah. Like, that has to be 100% honest. It really does. You can't practice that in the mirror and be like, can I do this endearingly? (laughs) Like, this is never going to work. No, you just have to like tigers that much. Hmm. Pretty scary. He was not scary. He was a somewhat portly, middle-aged black man. No, I mean tigers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, you're right. They're scary. Josh wasn't scary. Yeah. No, I I like Jeopardy. That sounds like some vintage Trebek you got there. Man, I forgot Alex Trebek is kind of a dick on that show in a way that I really love. I think it's because he did it for so long. Like, I bet if you go back to, like, the first couple seasons, he's not quite as much that way. Yeah, but you can tell when there's a contestant that he's just like, well, Jeff, I'm kind of sick of your shit. Yep. And uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, me too. Well, uh, you ready to talk about a comic book? Yeah, let's do that. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I guess the main thought I had was, hey, something finally happened, like in, in this arc that we've been waiting for. I mean, sort of. It was one thing drawn out over the whole issue. But yeah, it felt like a movement forward. It was a weird issue. Um, What was weird about it to you? Well, for one thing, it's the first issue we've read where the dialogue isn't by Marv Wolfman, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I noticed that in the credits and was going to ask you if that had been something that had been happening in the past and I just somehow missed it or if this was a brand new thing for us. No, this is a brand new thing for us. So the story is still by Marv Wolfman, but the dialogue is by Paul Levitz. We have seen one Paul Levitz credit in the Teen Titans past. One of our least favorite issues, actually, he also was the co-writer on. And that was the issue that brought back the Teen Titans after a two-year hiatus in their original run. Mm -hmm. The one with Dr. Light. Mm -hmm. And that one he co-wrote with Bob Rosakis. And this one, 
as I said, it's a weird situation, and I feel like there is some disconnect in this issue with past events and the feel of some of the characters. And I think that's due to a combination of just having a different scripter on this, but also the process of having the issue be basically Wolfman tells the artist the plot, the artist draws everything, and then a different writer fills in the dialogue, makes for some confusion, I think. And we'd already been seeing some confusion between the artist and writer, as Wolfman has been very busy lately. Mm -hmm. We see that continuing. And there is actually a note in the letters column where Wolfman notes that he's just pretty overworked. So this is what's happening now. He was doing a title called History of the DC Universe with George Perez. And he had also just taken over Adventure Comics featuring Superman. So he had a lot on his plate right then and just didn't have time to really do all of this, which I think we've been seeing signs of that lately with lack of continuity in the storylines. That's always been an issue with Wolfman, which is frankly why it's kind of a weird choice, I think, to have him do the history of the DC universe. But okay. Okay, that, that that's interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely noticed there was something about the way that the, the characters were kind of interacting with each other that seemed a little bit off, maybe. I think it was a combination of them being a little bit off and also a little bit too on the nose, which I think makes sense when you have a different person writing it. But like with Francis Kane coming in, it's like, here's who I am and here's an encapsulation of my character and my problems. You know, I feel like every character had a little bit of that moment where they're just like, and here's who I am, you know? Yeah, I gotta say, though, that there was one panel in particular when Frances shows up that, like, I empathize so strongly with her because, for me, it kind of encapsulated. So, like, I love this franchise, I love these characters, but for so much of it, I'm, I just find myself really frustrated sometimes at some of the, the vehicles used to keep the, the story moving. Like we kind of jokingly complain about, you know, needlessly complicated criminal plots and stuff like that. So it's the panel in which, you know, Wally's trying to bully her into joining the team. Yeah. And he's like, hey, you know, Brother Blood is still alive. And she just breaks down and puts her face in her hands. And she's like, <laughs> stop him. Isn't he dead? I thought you guys were there when he died. <laughs> and she just looks so like crushed and dejected and like weighed down by this thing that she thought had happened that everybody had seen hadn't happened. Yeah, I totally get that. <laughs> I empathize with her in that moment as well. And frankly, especially in this issue, this issue makes reference to some events that happened in a Teen Titans annual that we haven't read yet, which I think for the next Teen Titans thing, we should go and read that annual. Mm. But I honestly, I went back and read it, and I thought that more must have happened in that issue because there were so many things that I feel like didn't quite connect between this story and the last one. But no, most of those things just don't connect. Hmm. For instance, Wally being there and saying he was in Zandia. Oh, good point. Yeah. Maybe he did go to Zandia and just like got distracted, like... They had, like, legal weed cafes or something, and <laughs> he just, like, went in and started eating brownies, and then the whole adventure took place. You know, he just stayed in that cafe the whole time. That's one possibility. I also thought maybe he tried to convince everybody that he was there with them and just moving really fast 
Oh. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, I was vibrating at a frequency you couldn't see, but uh, where there was only one set of footprints, that was where old Junior Wizard of Wiz was running alongside you at super speed. Wow. Yeah, that is totally something you would say. <laughs> little mini messiah complex there. Yeah. The other, the main thing that is addressed in that annual is some brother blood information. Because at one point in this issue, and the thing that was the most jarring for me, was a almost throwaway line where the Titans say, Mother Mayhem told us that her kid's gonna kill Brother Blood, but we can't wait that long. Whoa, how did I miss that? That sounds a little bit too significant for me to have just glossed over. Honestly, you're better off not. I, I, I now need to find where that was. Just while we're on that topic, the Brother Blood resurrection thing was also pretty confusing to me because we're led to believe through the whole thing it's all kind of a trick, right? They're spraying hallucinogens into the air, they're mm-hmm. using holograms and everything, but then he's then he does like get resurrected, right? Or is that also fake at the end? I think it's supposed to be fake. My take on it was that he has been there the whole time. They didn't actually kill him. He was faking his death, which we've seen him do before. And then they do this whole thing with hallucinogenic incense and special effects and shit and make it look like he is getting resurrected. But there is some room for ambiguity there. But getting back to that passage that I guess you missed, it's on page 12. It's just after Robot Man shows up. Cyborg says, Mother Mayhem only gave us half the story and asked us to lay off blood. We're supposed to wait till her kid kills him someday. Hmm. So that is the only reference, but it makes a big difference, and it made me think like, oh, I must have missed a lot that really affects this story. And I didn't really. I think it's enough that we should read that before we get any more Brother Blood stuff, so I think in two weeks we'll hit the annual. Mm -hmm. But basically, there's two stories in it. One is about robot dinosaurs, which is super fun. Nice. And then there's like a 42-page B story that is a building's roman of Brother Blood. And I won't get too much into it because we are going to cover it, but the upshot is he's not 700 years old, He's seven different dudes who each lived to be 100 years old without aging because of magic and blood and shit and Christian mythology in a really weird way. And due to an ancient curse, Brother Bloods always live to be 100 years old. They don't age during that time, but they can only be killed by their children. And their children have to kill them. So that's the deal with Brother Blood which doesn't fit with what we have known about him before and how the church treats him and how he behaves. But it's an interesting story, but it got kind of lazily retconned in. But that's the deal with Brother Blood. And Mother Mayhem has had his kid. So that's the important thing to know from that story that affects this one a little bit. It doesn't really explain what happens with Brother Blood's resurrection. It doesn't really explain... What, if any, role Zach Wingman had in this, other than just acting as an MC for the ceremony, kind of, and looking like an angel? Mm -hmm. It doesn't explain what Wally was doing. 
Although I think we came up with an idea for that. He was either, yeah, hanging out in a legalized weed cafe or just convincing the other Titans that he was there the whole time. But coming into this story, like the main thing that I kept thinking was, so their trip to Zandia was for no goddamn reason at all. Yeah, I mean, if what, four billion people around the world can find these churches, <laughs> ostensibly, yeah. that's the reason they went there. By the way, with your recap, thank you for that, of them being 100-year-old dudes that can only get killed by their kids. I'm kind of Francis Caning, and my face <laughs> is in my hands. I'm just like, why? <laughs> why not just let him be 700? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like I said, it's it's not a bad story. It's an, it's an interesting story. And uh, the fact that it happened lets me use the word Bildungsroman, which is one that I like. But it isn't really necessary for the character that we see him as, and it makes everything more complicated and less coherent. Mm -hmm. True. But yeah, like you said, the whole trip to Zandia, why fucking bother? It's national news that this thing is taking place, and where it's taking place, apparently, and it's being televised all over. They launched their own satellites to broadcast it. Which, honestly, the Church of Blood, it seems like maybe they should have launched those satellites more than a few minutes before the broadcast was about to start, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really a satellite scientist, but just... You're not? Corey, <laughs> from now on, you tell me everything. One would think, though, just for, you know, usual planning stuff, do a test run. Yeah. Don't wait till the last minute to launch your satellites, man. That's just irresponsible. Mm-hmm. That being said, it's not a bad story. I think Paul Levitz is a good writer. Like you said, it did feel like something was finally happening. And the pacing was so different in this issue. We're not used to having one big event, the resurrection of Brother Blood, take place over the course of a whole issue and kind of finish by the end of it, that that part was kind of refreshing for me. Yeah, it was. Unfortunately, Paul Levitz, as I said, I think he's a good writer. He's probably best known for writing a bunch of Legion of Superheroes stuff. He's probably as well known as an administrator as a writer. He was a higher up at DC for a very long time and was one of the people instrumental in hiring Marv Wolfman in the first place and in bringing in Alan Moore and the editor Karen Berger. But in my mind, of equal, if not greater importance than those highlights of his career, is the mark of dishonor that he must bear for both issue 44 of the original Teen Titans run and this issue of New Teen Titans, both featuring dangerous and irresponsible Aqualad erasure. In issue 44 of the original series, the team gets back together Aqualad isn't there, and then he just mysteriously is the next issue. So hopefully that'll happen again this time. But it seems like there is a complete dropping of that storyline. And I did a little poking around. The resolution of the Aqualad storyline doesn't happen in the new Teen Titans. What? So he just, Mento just keeps him the, like the whole time? It gets resolved by a different writer in spotlight on the new Teen Titans, which comes out a few months from this issue. So we're going to have to dip into that, which I resent, but we have to. 
But it really does seem like, oh, he forgot, and somebody else picked it up in a different title and finished that storyline. I'm sure Wolfman had his hand in that pie. But damn, I- I'm really fucking annoyed by that. Well, yeah, I would say especially as somebody that is as big of a fan of Aqualad as you are, like the fact that they just forgot about him is pretty shitty. Yeah, it's bullshit. And like I said, it's not the first time that's happened, and it's not even the first time that Paul Levitz has done that when he's co-written a comic book. So, uh, very frustrating. Mm. We'll need to figure out when we're going to pick that back up, but at some point we are going to need to read Spotlight on the Teen Titans number 10. Yep, I definitely want to see that storyline come to a conclusion. Yeah. There were a couple of things about the resurrection ceremony that didn't quite make sense to me. And by a couple of things, I kind of mean everything about it. But specifically the roles of the Teen Titans characters in it, I was not sure to what extent they were just there for PR. And like I said, I couldn't figure out if Zach Wingman was actually doing anything. Did you think he was? No, I thought it was just all artifice. Does he think that he's doing something? I think he does. I think he thinks he has a very important job. Oh, man, what a chump. Well, that's not a surprise to us. That's fair. We've seen him turn on a dime, right, in the past, where he'll be, like, sobbing and just be like, nothing makes any sense. And Mother Mayhem will be like, that's right, but you have a job to do. And he's like, oh, really? (laughs) That's cool. I'm important. And special? Hooray! I'll join your evil organization. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I wish that was less realistic. (laughs) Yeah. I also couldn't quite figure out what Raven's role in this was, other than creeping me out. Like, there's a projection on the altar of Brother Blood as a little fetus, and... She heads up on the stage and just kind of waves her arm around it. And then it grows into a, like, adult-shaped hologram that starts, like, grabbing her butt and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep, and then that, that turns into the grown-up uh, brother blood. Yeah, what the fuck is up with that? Yeah, I don't know. So, earlier in the issue, Wonder Girl, you know, posits that Raven's involvement has to do with the fact that she's an empath. And similarly, Brother Blood kind of absorbs and more so feeds off the uh, energy of his followers. Mm-hmm. And that so there's some kind of weird connection there. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know why she's making out with a former baby hologram. It seems like, yeah, he's a baby. And then they're like, OK, Raven, go up there and you get to be the lore that, you know, once you grow up, you get to make out with me. Convince that space baby to mature. I'm like, that is so fucked up. Yep, which I think explains Dick's expression. (laughs) Do you mean when he just creams his fucking superhero genes? Oh, no, no, I meant on the last panel, but I I did have some thoughts about that (laughs) panel on page seven. I actually wrote a note. Did he just poop himself? (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Could go either way. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I see what you mean about the last page. Yes, it explains his expression on the last page. And also, it looks like at that point, Raven's just pulling a Francis Kane and being like, what the fuck is going on? This is fucked up. It's the only panel in which she doesn't look just look exultant with joy. But uh, yeah, the panel we're talking about is on page, I believe, 
seven, and it is Nightwing saying, rise, rise. Oh. <laughs> but he's also making double fists and staring off into the middle distance. Yeah, but he's saying rise first. <laughs> well, everybody's saying that. I think that if he had pooped himself, Raven wouldn't be smiling in the panel right next to it. <laughs> Maybe so. I don't know. It's the, the hallucinogenic incense probably would, you know, distract her for momentarily if he had done that. Man, using hallucinogenic incense is so fucked up. I really enjoyed that that aspect of Mother Mayhem's plan of like using this fancy stage show and drugs to fool all those people. I thought that was a really nice evil genius kind of moment. No, she is doing an amazing job with this multinational multimedia event. Like, she is one hell of a director pulling this thing off. Mm -hmm. It is incredibly impressive to me. And yes, it's clever, but I mean, use of hallucinogen and incense is evil. If she wanted to be good, she would have to use hallucinogens in rad new balloons because <laughs> yep. at the end of the day sure you have a terrifying trip that was not something you agreed to do but you got a cool balloon to take home and you learned a valuable lesson yeah incense you got nothing mm -hmm. nothing except a new messiah i guess i guess that's canon now drug incense bad drug balloon good agreed I think maybe my least favorite thing that happened in this issue is the death of Arella as kind of an aside. Like, it was so rushed, we don't get a beat to have even, like, the impact of it before we switch to another scene. It felt so rushed and so disrespectful to a character that has been around in these pages for a long time now. Yeah, I was kind of holding out hope that she's maybe not actually dead. Maybe, but even if it's not an actual death, we are, I believe, supposed to believe that she's dead at this point, and there's not a second to sit with it or to let the moment have any impact. It just is rushed along, and it's like, okay, now on to something else. It was really shitty. I really did not care for that. No, I'm not a fan either. I mean, that's that typical trope, I guess, of you know, we have to show that these guys are really evil, so let's go find a, a woman to kill. Yeah, it's very much a fridging of women moment, and it's something that gets called out in the letters section of this, actually, too. A woman named Catherine Mee writes in and says, I am very tired of seeing threats directed at women, the way the mutant leader did in Dark Knight. Women are neither punching bags nor property, and at least some of them in your comics ought to be able to prove it. Even if they are just victims who have to be killed to further the story, at least let them die fighting. I would say maybe just don't have them exist as victims to further the story. But the response to it is, you're right, Catherine, and you raise issues to which we should be more sensitive. And we will be. Which is why you notice that trope stopped in 1987. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it hasn't happened since then. So good job, Catherine. Good job, Wolfman and Levitz. So we get to see our old pal Bethany Snow again. Yeah, randomly selected my ass. Jeez. I liked that touch. I liked that she claimed to be randomly selected. I think she is really well done in this issue. I mentioned that some of the characters seemed written a little bit clunkily. I think hers really works. 
Yeah, when she said that, that was one moment where I was like, oh, you jerk. (laughs) And then she makes the ridiculous claim, too, that if this is truly Azriel, we are undoubtedly about to witness a miracle. The first miracle, I might add, to be documented for the world by television as it happens. So I guess in the DC universe, they didn't televise the 1980 Olympic gold medal hockey game? The miracle on ice? Come on, Bethany Snow. Come on! Oh, wow. That's uh, that's just some shoddy journalism. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like that, Bethany Snow. They did a good job with that character. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like I said, it, it is a big worldwide event that is being broadcast on all of the major networks, and for some reason, they allow Bethany Snow to host all of them. She says she was randomly selected. I get it. It's a nice, like, fuck that lady, she's lying moment, but... It was also kind of confusing for me that they would just let a cable anchor host ABC, NBC, and CBS just for this one event. Mm -hmm. Maybe she was the only person that the church would let in as a reporter. And so they're like, well, if you want the story, you have to do it through her. I'm assuming it's something like that. But there are a bunch of like montage panels that drive home the point that Everyone around the world is watching this event and what a truly big deal it is. And honestly, the one that drove it home the most for me is you see some people watching it in a bar and I'm like, wait, they turned the volume up on the TV in the bar? This is a big deal. (laughs) Right. We mentioned a few times the moment when Francis Kane first arrives. And there's something else that's kind of funny that happens at that moment where Jericho asks her to help them. And there is a weird division amongst the Teen Titans ones that are like, hey, uh, stop trying to pressure Francis Kane, but you should do this, Francis. And Titans that are just like, no, let's pressure her. We need her to help us. It's weird that they want her specifically to help them that much. I get that they want all the help that they can get, but Robot Man showed up for near as I can tell, no reason. So they're already up to more than full strength with Wally with them and all. But Jericho does this thing where he signs that they need her help, and the caption says, Jericho moves closer, his eyes making clear his sign, even to one who cannot read it, help. Apparently the sign for help, according to this book anyway, is to pound his fist into his palm. (laughs) That looks way more like he is threatening her than asking her for help. He is drawn super weird in that panel also. Like, his eyes are full lemur pupil. Mm-hmm. And his eyebrows are arched, and he, it's that look of, like, he's, like, goading somebody into something whilst smashing his fist into his palm. Yeah, I like that the caption is just, like, even if you don't know sign language, it's obvious that he's asking, pleading for help. I'm like... No, I'm looking at this picture. It looks like he's saying, like, you better. I think the only thing that would be more overt would be if he was, like, drawing his thumb across his chin. But if he was, I feel like the caption would have just been, like, it's obvious, even if you don't know sign language, that Jericho is offering to buy her a necklace if she helps them. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't like the way he handles the Francis Kane. Uh, 
attempted onboarding in this issue. Again, a little later on page 13, also the way he's drawn. Did you notice that? He's like leaning against the wall while Wally is making her cry. And he's got his arms crossed and his head's cocked to the side and his eyebrows arched. He's just like, might as well be making like the jerk off motion with the other hand because he's like so over this. Yeah, totally. I did notice that panel as well. And I think that's kind of an example of just like, that's not Jericho. Like Jericho is the reluctant hero in general. So to have him be pressuring someone else into action seems pretty out of character. Also, why is Robot Man there? Like, I like him and all, but he doesn't have any connection to this story at this point, other than he is friends with Beast Boy. But he is enemies with the Brotherhood of Evil. If you want to include him in a storyline, have him go to Zandia with them. They needed muscle there too. And he has some connection to those characters. He doesn't have shit to do with Brother Blood. It's weird and out of place to bring him in now and not bring in, like, a different character. I'm not saying bring Hawk back, obviously. That is a terrible idea to ever associate yourself with Hawk. But what about, like, I don't know, Thunder and Lightning? We haven't heard from them in a while. Or one of the other, like, Titan-adjacent characters. Mm -hmm. How about Gnark? Bring Gnark back! Nobody knows where he is. He's still lost in Jupiter Tower. Yeah, I guess we're supposed to assume that, you know, off-panel sometime before the first page, Donna was just making a bunch of calls to, you know, Robot Man and Francis and whoever else you could try and get to show up. Yeah. Honestly, my assumption with this issue is that it was produced concurrently with the previous issue, possibly the previous two issues, and they just weren't aware of what was happening. Because that makes sense with Wally still being there and being like, we just got back from Zandia. But Kerry Gamble not getting that note when he was putting that artwork together, like, it really just seems like one of a number of miscues. Yeah. I will say it is a gorgeous issue. I am so happy to have Eduardo Barreto back as the artist, and I think he does a really spectacular job with some of the special effects of the Church of Blood in this issue. Absolutely. All that Kirby crackle and the creepy floating baby and Mm -hmm. shafts of satellite sunlight and there's a lot going on there really is well was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into the minutiae um it'll probably come up in the minutiae but i was i guess not surprised but disappointed and maybe this has to do with the change in the writing but beast boys comments and hitting on the female characters is like really feels like ratcheted up conversely though both cyborg and and robot man were pretty good about telling him to uh shut up pretty much immediately after he would say something stupid yeah i was also disappointed by that and that is part of what i was talking about where characters are either acting out of character or they are acting in character but in a way that's too on the nose or kind of reductive i mean if you had to do like a one or two sentence description of beast boy it would be Skeezy with women, obnoxious little shit, changes into animals. Probably in that order. Oh, and then is green. Green, yeah. So Levitz is like, okay, so here's this character. I'll get that out of the way right away, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like he does that with all of the characters as they are introduced. Just be like, okay, here's this character. Here's what their whole deal is. 
here's this character, here's what their whole deal is. And unfortunately, that is kind of the default setting for Beast Boy. He's been acting a lot better recently, I think Beast Boy has, and has kind of had a little bit more maturity. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic. But yeah, when you get a new writer taking it over, you often will get that kind of instant regression to the logline of that character, you know? Yeah, totally. I, I had the same thought that I was hopeful he was, you know, kind of maturing and getting a little more bearable, and this was a big backslide. But as I said, I did appreciate the older guys on the team telling him to put a sock in it. Mm-hmm. Well... Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yes, thanks. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Gosh, why don't we just get it out of the way and do the Aqualad and the Beast Boy? Okay, every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad? I had Cyborg as my Aqualad. He does some good fighting in two separate instances, as I said earlier, one on page 11, another on page 24. He, as soon as Beast Boy says something creepy, tells him to knock it off. Mm-hmm. And also, he has probably my favorite bit of dialogue in the comic where he says something to the effect of that the last time, gosh, I don't know if it was Brother Blood or Mother Mayhem did anything holy, it was when they had some Swiss cheese. Yeah. That was a pretty good cheese joke. That was cheesy as fuck, man. But yeah, I also kind of enjoyed it. So, winner. Yeah, he also was the most pragmatic of Titans when they're doing their big attack scene where they jump out of the jet together i think beast boy was like yeah we're gonna mop the floor with them and he's like uh we've barely managed to kind of thwart what they were up to before we really shouldn't expect better results than that now Mm -hmm. and he was also one of the characters who certainly appealed to francis when she showed up but without overly pressuring her the way some of the other characters did yeah that's a pretty smooth line (laughs) One freak to another. Yeah. Uh, I bet he starts a lot of his conversations <laughs> that way. Hey, is one freak to another. <laughs> just just between us freaks. Yeah. I mean, I think he probably listens to a lot of Blowfly records. <laughs> I, I think he would be... Un- I think actually his character would be uncomfortable listening to the sexual Zodiac. In that he's at least part human? Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Cyborg was my pick for Aqualad as well. Conversely, who did you have as your Beast Boy? It's going to be a big surprise, but uh, just the constant hitting on Wonder and Starfire and Francis, and in particular one part where he makes some joke about, like, you can have two of my dates if I can have one of yours, this, like, women as chattel thing was just gross. That he's not even trying to barter with Francis Kane for a date, he's trying to barter with Wally for a date with her, is, yes, super shitty. He was in very strong contention for mine. I kind of wanted to talk through it a little bit, because I also feel like Azriel did a super bad job. <laughs> Zach Wigman! <laughs> Just not realizing that he's not doing anything. I flew so high. <laughs> That I brought a man back to life. Aye! 
He does make an IE sound. That's pretty, pretty good. That's, that's the best thing he did. I also am very, very tempted to choose Wally as the worst for gaslighting everyone into believing that he was with them in Zandia, including his, I believe, girlfriend at the time, Francis Kane, and bringing her into this situation where he knows she will be uncomfortable, that he knows she doesn't want to do any superheroing stuff, and going immediately to, you have to do this. Look, I made you a fucking costume and everything. What the fuck? Mm -hmm. I think I might honestly give the edge to him slightly over Beast Boy, although I agree, Beast Boy is very, very creepy. Yeah, they're both definitely shitty in different ways in this issue. Also, Francis has never had a superhero costume before, has she? Not that I'm aware of, but it seemed like something she recognized, which was weird. Either she recognized it, or maybe it is just a super shitty costume. Maybe it's just, like, super revealing or something. But, like, the way she opens that thing and is like, Oh, what the fuck? And starts crying immediately means that that is not a thing that she is happy to be seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but she knows immediately it's her costume, right? Because she's like, what's this, a box? With my name on it? And then she says, oh no, my costume. Maybe it just has Super Francis written across the chest of it. Or it is Wally in his naming convention, so maybe it's Kid Francis. <laughs> Junior. <laughs> Junior Wizardess of Wiz. Mm, mini Magnet. Enchantress of Wiz? Magnet Miniature? <laughs> Junior Enchantress of Magnet Wiz. So is it Wally? I think I am going to give the slight edge on that to Wally. That's good. Yeah, it's good for us to share. Yeah. Share the responsibility out so the bad actors, you know, feel the sting of our rating. <laughs> Take that, Injustice. Well, Corey, it's time to take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to focus on? Well, despite my dissatisfaction with the rest of his performance, I did particularly like on page 18 when uh, Kid Flash referred to the bad guys as dim goons. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. I like dim as an insult. I I feel like that doesn't get enough attention yeah let's bring dim back mm-hmm. how about dim bulb how do you feel about that uh as like as an insult or that was like yeah. the name of a band i thought um yeah I, th- I think that's pretty that can be a pretty good one one of the ones that i definitely noticed was the triple fool coming from the confessor where he says fools you are all fools and then in the next panel she's dead fools look That's the only bad word he knows. Yeah, pretty much. But, you know, he makes the most of it. Good for him. Yep. The other exchange that I thought was worth noting was Robot Man shows up. Cyborg says, glad you could creak your way here, old timer. Zing. Zing. Yep. Robot Man says, couldn't turn down little beastie here, even if he is more than three feet tall now. And Gar's response is, yeah, but I can still sneak under a subway turnstile before you can say Millard Fillmore was my favorite president, fella. That's a pretty good zing. Millard Fillmore was a piece of shit. It was a pretty good zing. I had to Google who that was. That was a very long time ago. 1855. 
Yes, although I think if you are going to be calling somebody old, then you maybe shouldn't also use the word fella. Because <laughs> it doesn't make you exactly sound hip and with it. Yeah. But yeah, no, Millard Fillmore fucking sucks. So saying that Millard Fillmore is Robot Man's favorite president both makes Robot Man sound very old, but also implies that he is a centrist piece of shit who is trying to keep the Whig Party going well longer than it should have and uh, believed in supporting the Fugitive Slave Act. So, zing. Boo. Yeah. Also probably worth noting, we have a mebby count of two in this issue. Honestly, wasn't that crazy about the way that Paul Levitz was writing cyborg slang, like spelling some of that out. But uh, yeah, he definitely leaned on the mebbies in this one a little bit. Mm -hmm. He did give cyborg one line that I did appreciate on page 12, where he says that uh, blood referring to brother blood as an emotion vampire sucking up people's feelings. Mm -hmm. I thought that was, that was pretty good. Not necessarily a zinger, but a, a good <laughs> observation. That's true. Sartorially speaking, what elements of fashion in this issue are worthy of note? Man, this was a tough one in that department. There's like kind of a lot of extras, so to speak, characters, you know, in the background, mm -hmm. but they're drawn pretty small. Out of those, on page one, I did note there's a woman in the crowd that has an enormous pink turtleneck sweater. She does. There's another, there's a purple turtleneck in the bar scene that I mentioned earlier, too. So, yeah, a couple of the bystanders have significant turtlenecks. Although, after seeing Warp's enormous, uncircumcised robo-turtleneck, <laughs> they just kind of leave me cold. Well, yeah, I mean, they pale in comparison. I think for me, the winner is in terms of fashion in this issue. That was probably Francis Kane's 80s getup with a blouse and a skirt. The blouse especially just seemed very like, I think of it as like 1980s, maybe office or school teacher attire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a decent look for her and fairly consistent with the fashion that she's worn in the past. I noticed that uh, Zach Wingman seems to have had a little bit of a makeover. His mm -hmm. boots are fucking bonkers, man. They mm -hmm. are apparently made out of what appears to be solid gold, I would say. And they have this like a almost fishtail shape that where they split into a V, but like that's kind of curved as they approach his knee. We also see that before, I think we noticed that there was that one cover where it looked like he was not wearing any underpants and the Titans were aghast and shocked at whatever he had between his legs. Mm -hmm. And I think perhaps to combat that, the Church of Blood has just really locked up all of his junk in a big metal contraption over his midriff. It's like a double interlocking chastity belt. It's pretty serious, and it, it does all look, as you said, metallic. So it seems like an extremely uncomfortable outfit in its entirety. Yeah, he's going to be in trouble if he has to go to the bathroom. It probably is because he's going to be flying so much, trying to conceal his cloaca and just keep him from laying eggs and shitting all over everybody. So that's probably what's happening there. Mm -hmm. Other fashion, I don't know if it even counts as fashion or character design, but Robot Man, when we've seen him before, I think this is a regression to his older costume, maybe. 
but he looks like he is just wearing a Walkman as a tiny backpack on his chest or like a baby Bjorn for his Walkman. It's just a weird kind of look and I, I, I dig it. I found myself thinking, I, I really hope that those buttons don't do anything important. <laughs> That's probably for the best. You don't want those facing out like that. Mm-hmm. It really looks like a target. Shoot me here. Maybe that's what it is, though. Maybe it's like, uh, you know, camouflaging. Like, it, it draws all the attack there, and that's where he's most heavily armored, and they're, you know, vesticle buttons. Mm, like uh, spots on uh, moth wings that look like eyeballs. Exactly. Mm. Those are there in case the Three Stooges try to attack the moth. They'll try to poke it in the eyeballs, but those are wings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice try, Shemp. You fucking idiot. <laughs> you tell him. Corey, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Yeah, I found, I mean, other than the Millard Fillmore one, I think two in the same word bubble from Beast Boy on page 11, where he references both John Carpenter, and I think this was the year that They Live came out, and also says something about him being in a Cabbage Patch, which I would assume was kind of like a Cabbage Patch Dolls reference. Mm -hmm. I mean, also he's green, but... sure. I chose to take it as a timestamp. The Cabbage Patch thing, I think, was maybe supposed to be more of a he's green reference, but it came across as a Cabbage Patch Dolls reference. If nothing else, certainly the concept of Cabbage Patches was part of the national conversation at that point. You also have him invoking the name of Molly Ringwald as a heartthrob. And for the reprint, that would be the year that They Live came out. But this issue was actually published in the beginning of 87. They Live came out in 88. Mm, Okay. So I think it would be probably more within a year of this, you have Prince of Darkness would be coming out a few months after the publication date of this issue. You have Big Trouble in Little China a few months before. And a few months before that, you had uh, Black Moon Rising. So very prolific period for John Carpenter. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, uh, Prince Darkness far too scary for Beast Boy. Yeah, he's probably thinking of Black Moon Rising. Probably. I mean, aren't we all? Tommy Lee Jones has to fight a future car or something. I don't remember that one that well. Have you seen Black Moon Rising? I th- dimly recall that, but yeah. it's been a super long time. That out of the Carpenter movies is not the one that, that comes to mind. Right. But I mean, Frances Kane had said that she felt like it was something out of a bad sci-fi movie. So if that's what calls John Carpenter to mind, then I think you gotta say it's probably Black Moon Rising that he's referencing. Yeah, that's that's fair. Or was Starman any good? I've never seen that one. It's like his romantic alien movie starring Jeff Bridges. That's not the one where the alien we think is a guy and then it has a baby. No, that's Enemy Mine. Yeah, that one's Enemy Mine, which stars Enemy of the Show, again, Dennis Quaid. Oh, keeps trying to get his way into this podcast. Dennis Quaid, you stay out of my brain, you stay out of my brother's brain, and you stay out of my body with your shrinking ways and your injection points and your dreamscaping. Oh, Dennis Quaid. Feel better? A little bit. Okay. Corey, who did you have as your president of the drama club in this issue? Yeah, there was certainly 
enough drama to go around in this issue. I ultimately, though, wound up going with Francis Kane. In particular, the kind of chest clutching, fist making, crying that she was doing was just very, very over the top. She did a lot of that. I don't know. I think part of that may be the result of having the artist not work from a full script, but going from a plot and then having somebody else do the dialogue to fill in. Because it seemed like she was going back and forth between crying and being in tears and then having a conversation and then crying and being tears in a cycle that didn't quite match up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just over. Overkill. I definitely had her as a possibility in that regard. I also had Zach Wingman just for, I mean, he is definitely putting on a show, especially when you consider the fact that he isn't actually doing anything. The amount of times he finds himself in tears or exultant or saying, I have to focus all my energy as hard as I can. It's like, what do you think you're doing? Yeah, no, that's Azrael's a good choice. He was definitely overacting. I, I for my runner-up, had, had Dick for maybe pooping himself and with <laughs> religious fervor. Like, he'd be trying really hard. I'm pretty sure he was coming in his pants. Uh, that, that's very much a uh, an herbal essence shampoo commercial that it looks like he's trying to star in. I don't know. I think the way he's making fists <laughs> <and> staring <laughs> off in his face is, makes a strong argument for evacuation. Well, tough to tell what's going on in Dick Grayson's pants. Either way, very dramatic. Either way, something dramatic is happening in that man's trousers. What was your favorite panel? Gosh, the art in here, as you mentioned, was good. You know, I really enjoyed it. I think probably my favorite is the brother blood reveal at the very end. Hmm. Um, it's got Dick kind of standing in the background going like, what the fuck? And Raven also having a WTF response in a different way. But it's it's just impressive. And it's what I think we expected to see in everything. So it wasn't necessarily a surprising treatment. But that, you know, it's got him in the top three quarters or so of the panel and all this Kirby crackle and lightning and power is shooting out from his hands. And uh then it's got the chance of blood, blood, blood along the bottom with a army of, you know, raised fists pumping in the air as people are super excited about him. It's like there's just a lot of energy in the panel. Yeah. Do you know what his snake helmet is made out of? This is a spoiler for that annual, but I, I, I can't keep it in anymore. Um, a actual head of a giant snake? No, no. I mean, that may be incorporated into it but it's actually made out of Jesus's prayer shawl. What? Yeah. How do you make a helmet out of a prayer shawl? We'll get to that. Epoxy? I just wanted to leave that in there for you. Oh, wow. That's weird. It's very weird. I agree. That is a beautiful panel. I had a few options here. One of them was on page nine, the first panel of the... 2001 space baby fetus that is brother blood i just think that's really nicely handled and it cracks me up that everybody in the audience sees it and just goes oh (laughs) what do you think that oh 
represents? Is it like a, they're like, oh, I, that's a baby. I've seen that before. I know what that is. <laughs> I think kind of. And it, it seems like it's a recognition. Like, I think everybody is wondering what's going to show up in that image. And then it's a baby. And they're like, oh, baby makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's funny, though, because after that, the panel, everybody just starts shouting, yes, yes. <laughs> they're, they're congratulating yeah. themselves for recognizing the giant baby. Yeah, they're very proud of themselves. I mean, anybody who's listened to Dennis Miller's comedy knows that congratulating yourself for understanding a reference is a really big part of entertainment. Maybe just it's tough to tell from the representation, but it's a one of those magic eye things. Like, where they had to unfocus their eyes a little bit to, like, see the sailboat. But, like, it's not a sailboat, it's a baby. And so, like, they unfocus their eyes a little bit, they look past where the image is supposed to be, and they're like, Oh, it's a baby! Yes! We did it! Yes! Mm, Got it. Yep. Okay. So, nice job, Mother Mayhem. Just, like, crowd psychology, magic eye paintings, hallucination-inspiring incense. Lady knows how to put on a show. I'll say. The other big option I had is on page eight, and I think it might be my favorite, but it is the Led Zeppelin t-shirt of Azrael as the beams of light are shining down on him from the heavens. Oh, yeah. It is, I guess, both of them inspire everybody saying, oh. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I remember. I think I had that shirt when I was a kid. I think you had like a like a yellow and orange tie-dyed of that shirt, yeah? It's possible. Either way, it's a hell of a shirt, it's a hell of a panel. Mm-hmm. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wapoot! What's Aqualad probably up to? Or if you want, Mr. Jupiter or Speedy. What are one of the characters not appearing in this issue probably up to? Since we found out that he is not going to have his storyline resolved in this title, I think that does put Aqualad back into play. So, dealer's choice. What's somebody probably up to, Corey? Yeah, so I went with Aqualad, so we'll say that maybe this is the time period in April between when he has escaped the clutches of Bento. Sure. And not yet returned to the team. And that being such a horribly stressful experience for him, he just really needed to get in the ocean and swim until he could swim no more, which brought him all the way to Australia. Ah. And once there, you know, he's he's relaxing, hanging out on the beach. And um, another thing that he had been thinking a lot about when he was in captivity are, you know, how he has these great, strong connections with with a lot of aquatic animals and one of his favorites but he felt like that really just the world didn't give enough recognition to is the platypus Ooh, yeah so monotremes in in general he's, he's pretty interested in but you know the platypus being aquatic largely was just fascinating to him so he's hanging out in in australia having having swum there and having platypuses on his mind he ran into a buddy of his who he hadn't seen in a long time, pretty big deal uh, architect, James McCormick, and they struck up a conversation. They had been chatting, and uh, it turns out that McCormick had been working on this this huge urban renewal study for a, a place called Kangaroo Point, which is a giant parcel of land 
on the south bank of the Brisbane River. And they got to talking and came to this idea that like, hey, McCormick had, had worked before on the Australia Pavilion at one of the, uh, the previous World Expos. You know, these big, you know, kind of events uh, that are hosted in a country and, and there's these like pavilions or platforms for a bunch of other countries to come and like, you know, show off stuff. Mm-hmm. So McCormick had worked on that and was telling Aqualad about that. And Aqualad's like, hey, why, why don't you try and have the next World Expo here in Australia and Brisbane and we can have the host be a, a platypus? Ooh. <laughs> yeah. So one thing led to another, and yep, sure enough, later on, actually it took him quite some time, so it was the uh, uh, 1988 World Expo, called Expo 88, launched at the end of the month on the 30th, and uh, ran to the 30th of the following month, October of 88. Expo had a theme of uh, leisure in the age of technology, and the mascot was uh, an Australian platypus who uh, was named Expo Oz. <laughs> who got to be very popular, and there were plush toys and stickers and all of this stuff. And uh, it just, I mean, this thing was huge. Like, the Expo 88 attracted more than 15 million visitors. Whoa! And uh, the ticket value were over 175 million uh, Australian dollars, which, you know, wildly exceeded the expectations of the event's organizers. And, you know, we can definitely say that the stock of uh, platypuses, especially Expo Oz's, went up worldwide as a result of uh, of this stuff. Man, you sent me a picture of that little fella, and he is a goddamn delight. Yeah. Adorable little platypus wearing a top hat. It's like a platypus leprechaun. He's wearing a green outfit with a big top hat. Adorable. Yeah, pretty cheerful. And uh, just also as a, as a side note in keeping with, you know, that this is an international theme and, you know... If any of our listeners were around for Expo 88 and want to fact check us on that, we appreciate it. Aqualad is still recovering from his embarrassment about conflating uh, Cornish and Welsh pastries, which may have given listeners the mistaken impression that Cornwall is in Wales, which, of course, is not the case. So, yes, any feedback about platypuses and um, the World Expo 1988 is welcome. I would also imagine that Aqualad is also probably still recovering from all of the delicious platypus eggnog that he probably drank. I understand it's the Australian national beverage, which is <laughs> eggnog made from platypus eggs and platypus milk and the venom of the platypus spurs, giving it a little uh, alcoholic kick. <laughs> wildly popular beverage down under is, is my understanding uh and so probably uh aqualad's had a little bit too much of that and any complaints can be sent to ttwasteland at gmail.com well that's what aqualad was probably up to but would you like to know what mr jupiter is probably up to the richest and therefore most trustworthy man in the universe the same one certainly mr jupiter was inspired by the worldwide television event that he witnessed of the resurrection of Brother Blood, inspired by the use of hallucinogenic incense to uh, maybe get out a couple of his old balloons and take in a film himself. <laughs> so he decided that it was time for him to confront his greatest fear, which is what you do when you have a hallucinogenic balloon 
So he took a hallucinogenic balloon to the movies and saw the recently released My Neighbor Totoro. And he mostly enjoyed it. But when Mr. Jupiter saw that enormous cat-shaped bus pull up at the bus stop in My Neighbor Totoro, he got super freaked out. Because that cat is enormous, and also, he was high as fuck. So his drug-addled mind started formulating a plan. See, he knew about Coco the gorilla and her kitten, All Ball, and he was like, Oh, so if a cat has a gorilla mentor that makes them more manageable, I need to <laughs> trap an enormous gorilla. Um. And so he came up with a plan to trap an enormous gorilla. He traveled to the town of Selensgrove, Pennsylvania, and commissioned the creation of a four and a half mile long banana split in hopes of trapping an enormous gorilla. Now, by the time the banana split was completed, the drugs had started to wear off, so he pretended it was just to get into the Guinness Book of World Record and raise money for charity, but really he had been trying to catch a King Kong to tame the cat bus from my neighbor Totoro. Damn. And that is what Mr. Jupiter was probably up to in the year of our Lord, 1988, and the month of our Lord, April. That's a big banana split. Biggest one we got. Actually, I believe the record has been broken since then, but at the time, at least, four and a half miles long was the biggest banana split on record. Holy cow, I wonder what the reason for the even bigger one was. That's going to take a lot of anime and balloons. Yeah. Man, imagine the size of a cat that a gorilla that large could tame. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey. I had a real good time chatting with you about this comic book about which I had somewhat mixed opinions. Likewise. We will be back next week to talk more Defenders, and the week after that, we'll hit up that uh, new Teen Titans annual and learn more about Brother Blood's origin and, more importantly, some robot dinosaurs. Sweet. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com or via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. You can also look for us up in the internets. We're in some of those places, although, like Corey, I've been a little bit less active on them recently, giving a little bit of space for more important voices on the timeline, and also just giving myself a little space away from social media. But we're still up in there. And uh, you can find us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, I don't know, Netscape 2.0, you know, all the internet places. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's another place you can look inside your heart. We'll be there building the world's largest banana split. Ooh. Because that's how big your hearts are. Huge. Big enough to house a seven-mile banana split, which we will use to lure an enormous gorilla into your heart. <laughs> That's a pretty good laugh. Thanks. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. 
If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There's a lot of little videos that I've been making that are reviews of classic comic books. There's also the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast I co-host with Lisa. We got a little bit behind on that, but we're getting back on track. There should be a new one up by the time you listen to this that we recorded on our anniversary, because that is our dedication to that show, despite the fact that we did fall a little bit behind. But yeah, there's just a ton of stuff up there that is exclusively available to our donors. So if you kick a couple bucks down to us a month, then you get to see all of that stuff. But more importantly, at least from my perspective, is it's a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work that we're doing on the show and would like us to be able to continue doing it. So thank you for that. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, or in addition to supporting it monetarily, you can uh, do so by leaving us a review in a place that can be left. You can... <laughs> <laughs> like a bathroom. Yeah, you can leave a bathroom. Um, <laughs> what are some other places that can be left? Um, um, grocery stores? Sure, you can definitely leave a grocery store. Space jail? No, that's, that's one place you can't leave. The Hotel California? No, you can check out there, but leaving's a little more tricky. Uh, Brisbane, Australia. You can mm -hmm. leave Brisbane, Australia. And maybe you can leave reviews in those places, too. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave us a review in a place where a review can be left. If you're not sure if a review can be left someplace, why not ask your local congressman? They'll say, whoa, love to help you, son, but you're too young to vote. And then uh, you can be like, well, I'm flattered, but I am actually of voting age. Uh, because, you know, kids shouldn't be listening to this show, so you're probably a grown-up. And, you know, get out there and vote. Anyway, here's a review that got left for us on iTunes recently. A is not A writes, It's like a pie not made out of steel. Good. Five stars. Hub and Corey, and the occasional guest, are neat. You'll probably like them too. They're good human men from Earth. Much like you, and of course, me. Then they also talk about comics, and it's fun and occasionally silly. Very occasionally. <laughs> Mostly we do good, important, solid, serious work. Mm -hmm. That's a good review. Yeah, it's a very good review. Thank you, A is not A. I appreciate that. I also appreciate your name. I believe it is perhaps a reference to your objection to objectivism. So, uh, nice work on that as well. Thanks. And you know what? Thank you for listening. Until next time. Gotta get some more bananas. Gonna make a big split. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get the Banana Splits theme song stuck in your head? Uh, I don't think I know that one. One banana, two banana, three banana, four banana splits are coming in. They're coming to your door? I don't, I don't think I saw that. They're cooking up a mess of fun. Lots of fun for everyone. Na 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 Oh, no? that, that melody is familiar. Yeah. Okay, bye! Bye. And they knew it.
Okay. Ready? I think so. One, two, three. Oops. Did, Sorry. You didn't clap, did you? No, no, I didn't. I was thinking <laughs> it's about um, the Titan Hub. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought you were going to say, I'm Archie Bell in the Drells. <laughs> My bad. Okay. okay. Uh, Let's try it again. It's been, what, five years? <laughs> hey, take it easy. You do know that it isn't me singing the intro, right? <laughs> that actually is Archie Bell and the Trells. Um, okay, ready? Yep. One, two, three. Come on and tighten. Oh, <laughs> darn it. Oh, man, I threw it all off. <laughs>